I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we've got another double feature for you. Later on, we'll be speaking with Jack Rasmus, author of The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump, about the railroad workers, their attempted strike, corporate power, and Congress. But first, Thomas Ferguson, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and author of the seminal book, Golden Rule, The Investment Theory of Party Competition and the Logic of Money-Driven Political Systems, returns to the show to discuss the current social, political, and economic climate in the United States within the context of increasing tumult across the world. It's a conversation that takes us from the recent attempted railroad workers' strike to the FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried scandal. All that and much more in the conversation to follow with Thomas Ferguson. Welcome back to Parallax Views. Thomas Ferguson of the Institute for New Economic Thinking, also a professor emeritus at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Yes. Uh, how are you doing? We appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I note, uh, JG, if I may, that I'm not speaking on behalf of any of these institutions. <laughs> Just... Not that I always, I, I always wonder who would be crazy enough to think that, but uh, never mind. We'll make the formal declaration they all love. Uh, so 
uh, Professor Ferguson, I guess where we should start is probably what we discussed uh, off air a few minutes ago. It seems like we're in a really crazy situation just all over the world. I mean, we have, uh, you know, uh, we had an attempt at real strike in the U.S. We have, you know, crazy things happening in Germany with their, you know, far right Nazi elements. And then uh, we had the the protests in China um, and in, in now in Iran. So, I, I mean, what what do you see is happening right now? Well, the first thing to be said is you can see how the world economy and is dis- oh, the world economy is disrupting everything. I mean, these these energy price rises, the food shortages, uh, and inflation, uh, which you know are partly caused by those, but it's not just that uh, that's bringing you inflation. It's particularly right this second, since pr- the energy prices are slightly falling in some parts of the world. Um, you have a tremendous uh, economic pressures on people. That's translating into huge social pressures um, and political pressures. And in that sense, I don't think I've seen a world this uh, sort of tense across the board in a long time, since I guess the 1980s, which, you know, um, and, uh, you know, it is, it's worth just a brief look. You can see how chaotic the United Kingdom is. I mean, they, they're having, their nurses are about to strike. They're having train strikes. Even the border guards seem to be about to go on strike. So they're canceling flights around Christmas, et cetera. Um, this is, and, and uh, yeah, the German case you mentioned is extremely interesting. Although at one point you want to laugh. I mean, can anybody take... Heinrich VIII, I mean, you know, the, seriously. But on the other hand, uh, this morning's news brings to light, you know, more. they had some fairly serious people, even in the security services, into that thing. And we'll ha- now have to see the German security services uh, have not done well in the past uh, catching enemies of the state. They're very good at catching non-enemies of the state, uh, as it were, you know, people protesting and things like that. Uh, well, we'll see what how the vigorously this stuff is is prosecuted, and in particular, we'll want to know, uh, you know, if they had any ties to the, some of the new far right parties, uh, etc. We'll just have to just have to see here. Um, but uh, you know, you also got you know in Peru, the president tried to dissolve the Congress, and the Congress dissolved the president. You know, sort of. I can't believe I forgot to mention that. That was all over my social media. Yeah, yesterday. sure. No, no, it's uh, look, it's crazy. So let's come into the United States now um, and sort of sit this in the world, sit the U.S. politics in the world context, where I think if you do that, you see it's sometimes much easier to see some basic fault lines. Now, one point I'd make, just build on the energy price story. Um, and I gave an interview to somebody right after the election when the New York Times and lots of other places were all stressing the importance of cultural issues in the election. And I said, come on, guys, let's let's begin by making the obvious point, which is that opening the Strategic Petroleum Reserve was a big help. Uh, to the Biden re-election effort. I, I, here, I do not guess. I know that people were telling him if they didn't get the oil prices down, he was dead meat. They got the oil prices down, although a good deal of that fall was not just opening the strategic reserve, uh, but uh, the, the Fed raising rates crimped world demand as it spread around the world. And so people laid off buying oil, thinking they might be looking at a world recession. 
Uh, and that it's sort of ironic that the day after the um, uh, Georgia election uh, runoff, uh, I think we just hit the 2021 gas price again, right? Just dead on the head. That is to say, it's like now back to where it was uh, there before 2022 started. Now, I, I don't think that's necessarily going to stick around um, all that long. Uh, and in Europe, you know, natural gas prices started to shoot up again. And we've got all kinds of uh, problems going on in the world oil market for reasons it would take us too long and too far afield to go into. Um, but so where are we at here in the U.S.? I'd say, uh, well, all right, first of all, I read the runoff election in Georgia as more Groundhog Day. That is to say, it's almost like the same. Now, slight tilt toward the Democrats. But, you know, what puzzles a lot of people is you'd think, I mean, Herschel Walker has to have been maybe the worst candidate for Senate in a very long time. I was just going to say real quick, the thing I keep th seeing with uh, a lot of the talk about the Georgia election is, oh, well, th this is... Uh, this is great. Warnock won. And I'm just thinking to myself, okay, that's, I mean, good. Warnock won, but that was a pretty close race. By 1%. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, the turnout was pretty heavy and it's pretty obvious that, but it was less than the election, but that's always going to be true in a runoff. I mean, but it was pretty good. But so my, my take on this is we haven't, we've, we have an incremental change in the balance of power, and it works in the Democrats' favor in the Senate, where I do think that's quite significant because they can start, they that will free them up from their agreements with the Republicans for procedures in a 50-50 uh, committee situation. They're not in that anymore. And so they'll be able to do more investigations and more, I mean, you, in particular, that will affect investigations. Um, and while there's a lot of emphasis right now on what the Republican uh, House is going to do with potential investigations of, you know, Hunter Biden and all this stuff, uh, I think the Senate stuff is likely to be at least as significant. Going the other way, though, in the House, obviously the Republicans won that election, though it's not the case that McCarthy has the speakership quite in the bag yet. I mean, this is one of these cases where he four or five conservatives take a walk and he loses. Um, and that, you know, that hasn't happened in a long, long time. And I think what back in, was it 1916 or so? I forget long time. Uh, at any rate, uh, so you're looking at incremental change here. Now, what's actually happening underneath this? Well, first, the things I notice are, first thing I point to is the way before the election, Biden did his student debt proposal after waiting forever to do it, you know, and not doing things that he could probably have done by executive order, but he did it. Now they're, that's hung up in the court system. We'll have to see whether that works or not um, there. But uh, then he turns around after the election and bluntly, I mean, I, I think it is hard to overestimate how significant this is as a, I wouldn't say it's a straw in the wind, it's a telephone pole in the wind um, with the railway workers. I mean, because the plain facts of the matter are, look, COVID isn't over, even though the official story is almost everywhere that it is over, at least it was, I mean, Biden was sort of quite, I, I thought, 
uh, he probably thought they probably thought in the White House they were clever. I thought it was pretty grotesque. They said it was gone over. And then right after the election, they continued the emergency, uh, some of the emergency powers, even though uh, now the most of the insurance support and medical support for people without insurance has just disappeared or is in the process of disappearing even as we speak. Uh, we'll come back to that later. But, you know, the case for sick pay on the railroads seems to me to be overwhelming. Uh, and it's like, it, it's grotesque. I mean, you know, even one author uh, in the New York Times finally said, well, you know, uh, Nancy Pelosi began by uh, excoriating the rail, railroads for their settlement and then putting the settlement through exactly what they wanted. I mean, it's grotesque. Um, and that's, I think that's going to come back to haunt them. I, it had better um, in, in this. And I would also go on to observe that for all the noises that have been made by what I'm going to call the democratic publicity machine, including a lot of academics, economists who should know better, in my opinion, um, there, they were full in the pre-election run-up. They were going on and on about how well Joe Biden was the friendliest White House occupant organized labor has had for a long time. Well, that that's was true. that was one of his big promises, right? Yeah, was I'm going to be the true. most pro-union president. <laughs> that was true, and the National Labor Relations Board has indeed been uh, quite sensible and friendly. But most of American labor has nothing to do with the National Labor Relations Board, though there are fall, uh, there are spillover effects all over. And, and the fact is that the percentage of unionized workers, and uh, we have only numbers for 2021. Uh, they may alter slightly in 2022, but if it is, it'll be a Groundhog Day adjustment again, meaning barely, uh, you know, just repeating the same. In 2021, the, the, Democrat, the number of uh, folks in unions, the percentage fell under Biden. It didn't rise. And the whole the workforce as a whole has lost massively on inflation. I mean, everybody's real wages have been declining. A lot of folks directed attention to the very poorest workers who did get a raise for a while. I agree that's important. Um, but what was actually going on there, I mean, my friend Sarvat Storm and I are just finishing a paper on this. We just gave it in one place. What you're actually seeing there is not a general uh, great moment in which the working class position is improving. It's that uh, the relation, the safety problems in jobs were being, they're repricing. I mean, effectively, you had a lot of low paying jobs that were uh, generally figured very safe. And then suddenly they're not very safe at all. They're among the most dangerous work you could possibly find in, in a real high COVID uh, epidemic um, or even just uh, in the, you know, the, the somewhat lower dampening waves we see. I mean, uh, one problem with the whole Biden uh, machine since he came into office is they never got their COVID act straight. They don't have... Uh, a national testing program. They can't tell you how many cases are out there, which they should have done. You know, that's just obvious. Um, now I saw that Rachel Walensky, the CDC head, was just in Congress saying, maybe we need to compel local boards to share their information with us. Uh, yeah, I'd say, why wasn't that done on, you know, January 21st, uh, 2020? I mean, that's 
There were a lot of people who tried to tell them that. They didn't want to listen. Um, but I'll um, get off that stand. Anyway, so my take here is, look what you did. You tried, if you're a Democrat, you you tried very hard uh, to uh, do something for college-educated folks. And I don't have any problem with that. I think the student debt issue is is colossal, and I don't dismiss it as like many people do is saying, well, it's regressive. Uh, now you got huge public good aspects to this. Even people who don't go to college benefit from having a lot of people around who did go to college, as paradoxical as that sounds. I mean, you could, I mean, the whole area gets, as it were, more affluent. That's why, uh, I mean, that truth is so elemental that you know, even Republican states compete to get uh, high tech systems built into university hubs and things like that. Uh, well, all right. Um, so, but basically, you know, you can't turn the Democrats into the party of white collar workers, <laughs> um, but that's, they're well on their way to doing that. Um, and and uh, we would add, you know, just look at this crypto mess, <clears throat> which I know a lot for a lot of people, like this is like the biggest issue you'd think in the whole planet. I'm not a big, that's not my view. But, you know, yeah, it's interesting when a few billion disappear and people who I'd say are obvious crooks and liars uh, are running amok. But, of course, the telling thing is, look at how much money was pouring in to the coffers of congressional men and women there. Uh, now, uh, we might just for I mean, this if, if you're OK with this, we'll spend three minutes on this and then we'll just drop it over the side. My, no, no, uh, I'm I'm okay with that. I was very yeah, interested to talk yeah, about yeah. Uh, this Sam Bankman Freed and the um because a lot of people have been talking about oh he made so many donations to Democrats and I was more interested in hearing about that because I my understanding is that a lot of the donations went to um, sort of right leaning Democrats. Um, yeah, look, let's take this apart though. I, I should say first of all, this is work that based on stuff that. Uh, my colleagues Paul Jorgensen, Ji Chen, and I do. We haven't published it yet, but we're going to shortly. <clears throat> but this all comes with a big caveat, which is Bankman Fried also said, Friedman actually also said that, well, he gave a lot of money, I think he actually literally said about as much, uh, to Republicans in the form of dark money. But what was wonderful in the sort of that st statement of his was something like, but of course, but that would confuse the media. So if we if those were public, you know, now I don't myself think that would have confused the media at all. Uh, but boy, they have gone to town with the story that here was this left wing Democrat. When you study those donations, no, that's not where it went. I mean, and I would add there's a whole what I, I would describe as, let us say, quite fanciful uh, interpretation around, according to which, well, it was lots of foreign stuff, especially it was suggested Ukrainian money coming back in through it or something like that. And the evidence for that was simply that the uh, some of his organizations were offering to send let you send contributions to the Ukraine in cryptocurrency. But you know what? We had mayors in uh, Miami and New York and other who were saying you can pay your taxes uh, in cryptocurrency. That people thought that was cool to say, like they were the real thinkers of the future. Um, and no, I, I, when we pull up the evidence and look, what we see is vast amounts of the money predated 
the war in Ukraine. And I, I would not hold any truck for theories that people knew it was coming or anything like that. No. In fact, the, the big, the, the outstanding thing to grasp about the war in the Ukraine is that everybody thought it would be over in three weeks and that the Russians were going to win. And then it wasn't. Uh, you know, I mean, it's not like uh, nobody, and I'd know if there were significant numbers of people around, even in, you know, U.S. defense circles that thought, well, there was somehow going to be uh, a successful defense of Kiev. I mean, they were betting that they'd have to sort of support guerrilla war in the south, uh, in the mountainous areas in the west, and things like that. They, I mean, it was, it was an astonishing turnabout. I mean, it's a real, and it can't be too often stressed that people building theories, the, the amount of garbage on this worldwide is just amazing to me. But that's for another talk, some other time. Um, anyway, back to Bankman Freed and crypto. It, it's pretty obvious that what they were trying to do was buy the uh, basically the whole Congress, uh, whatever they needed, whatever it takes, as uh, to quote central bankers, um, to get the regul get it effectively free of regulation. And their particular plan was to get it out of the banking committee where they thought there might be real regulation, and especially out of the Securities and Exchange Commission, which was planning to issue some rules on that. Um, uh, and they wanted to go over to the Agriculture Committee, uh, which and the to which would which oversees the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, um, and which which notoriously is weaker. Um, and that was the whole plan, including the Democrats on that committee. Um, now, a fun thing is, OK, since he's now admitted that there's a large amount of dark money, I think we should demand that when they're talking, they're apparently going to hold hearings. The latest date I've heard is September, uh, sorry, December the 14th. We should, uh, I think the Congress now needs to demand a full accounting of the dark money. Um, and we need to know in particular how many people on the committees that are going to be interviewing this guy got money from him. Some we know did. Uh, others, I suspect, also did. I bet, too, that there are some Republicans on that, since Bankman-Fried was saying it was going to be Republican. They need to come clean on this. You know, they just do. Uh, and, uh, well, all right, let's see if they do. I'm not holding my breath. I mean, look, I, I, no, I'm, I'm, I've been around a while. <laughs> I don't think there may be something... The congressmen and women are too embarrassed to mention, but I'm not sure that I have lived yet to see it. Um, so, so anyway, uh, so that's my take. Uh, now, uh, a large chunk of that money was effectively what I'm telling you. It's really about financial regulation and more broadly, centrist Democrats and likely Republicans. Centrist Republican here being now almost an oxymoron, but we'll let that go since there is a fringe out there that really is strange. We don't presumably have to argue this after the, what was that slogan that they were all using like a week ago until it got too hot to trot? Um, was it, uh, can, ye, can ye Elon Trump? You know, uh, yeah, someone, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, is going to the Smithsonian of slogans, I think. Um, though uh, maybe we can make a summary statement on Trump too. I think he's probably... With the combination of legal ineptitude, because, I mean, these guys didn't do a particularly good job of defending themselves, but also his own stupidity. I mean, it's like, who on earth would have dinner with people he has dinner with and then parade it before the public? I mean, there. 
I mean, uh, what is effectively a kind of almost normalization of anti-Semitism. Uh, yeah, I was going to say having having dinner with, um, you know, uh, an anti-Semitic white supremacist like Nick Fuentes. I, I mean, I, I feel like this has shot his possibilities to get back in the White House. Yeah. Well, uh, all right. Here's what I think. I mean, you perhaps know my colleagues and I put out a study of uh, the Trump base in the Republican Party. The, the machine learning on. paper, right? What's that? The paper on machine learning yeah, approaches? Yeah, the machine learning approach, which has its own problems um, there. I'm glad to talk about that later, but let's not confuse politics with machine learning right now, no matter, even if you're talking about political machines. Um, the um, And there we, you, we were looking at the difference between where how well Republican congressmen and women did in 2020 versus Trump. In other words, where was he strong? And all of our evidence pointed to places where the big jump in employment, in other words, big drop in unemployment, uh, between 2016 and 2019, when the when, as the pandemic hit, where those were large, Trump ran really well and ran ahead of the, re, the Republican congressional folks. And we trimmed off some of these folks to get rid of the obvious cases where they'd never had a Republican congressman hardly at all or something like that. Um, so we wouldn't just get an artifact. Um, and my take is that Trump still carries this residual identification with economic growth. So the future of that, I think Trump is dead if you have a mild recession. If you have a deep one, um then i think he may pop back like uh one of these dummies that you punch and it goes down and then this pops right back up uh like i think uh i mean there's a lot of people almost half the planet including many democrats are talking up DeSantis, not because necessarily because they like DeSantis, but because they think anything to get rid of trump um but they're probably just all hearing themselves talk this is a bubble um, and it's going to depend on the economy. Uh, if the economy really takes a dive, Trump will be a pretty formidable contender, especially against several Republican candidates. And, and you know, I, what are the chances that there won't be several Republican candidates? You, I think they're very small. I mean, it was extremely interesting. You know, Ted Cruz and Mark Marco Rubio there were saying, well, they might not support the bill against to, to just do the uh, they, they wouldn't support the Biden proposals to agree with the railroad uh, industry and and suppress the strike. Um, that kind of stuff we've seen before. I, anybody who knows the history of the Berlin transit strike in January 1933 will think back to that garbage. Um, but uh, no, there's going to be a flock of Republican candidacies, and then we'll have to see. You know, it's going to depend on how bad is the economy. I agree. If it's just a mild recession, Trump probably is dead. But this is a vampire movie. He can get back up. You think that even even in light of what happened with January sixth, you think uh, Trump could make a comeback? Uh, let me put it this way. Now, I'm not. He, if it's a deep enough recession, he can get himself uh, elected, possibly. But what we've been talking about really is not can he get himself elected, but can he win the Republican nomination? That's a different story, you know. Um, and um, 
it's not encouraging to me that he's obviously sort of in some sense back to the no enemies on the right approach. Uh, it's like if you if the folks he has dinner with can walk into the Republican Party, anybody can walk into the Republican Party. Uh, so um, what can I say? I think this this is not, as I say, it's going to depend on the economy. Uh, but um, that now so that puts a lot now. So what let's analyze what Biden's doing a little bit. My reading of they announced just a day or two after the election, they were going to bring in another senior guy to have contacts with the business community. You know, now my response with that one was, hold on, a National Economic Council is full of people from um, private equity and things like that, have lots of contacts with the business community. Uh, what do we need another one for? I think it's obviously that's gonna turn out to be a kind of fundraising reach out. They're, I think they're gonna try to clearly raise a lot of money um, and between now and 2024, that's regardless of whether Biden is running or not. I, I don't mind saying I take it for granted. He can't run that he will. I mean, that's one way even Trump might get elected. Um, but um, nobody is going to admit this for a long time. And the, the, since the Democratic Party and most much of the media is so hierarchical at this point, most of them will just fall in line until the internal pressures are overwhelming on him. But he obviously can't run. And, you know, another problem with the Democrats is they have no obvious successor that's so clearly strong that uh, they'll just take the cake. So this, this is going to be, in effect, you got kind of a headless horseman. Um, and the top, though, uh, so the direction can continue. It's sort of like the... Eh, three quarters of the way through the Reagan years, you know, where the president was not always uh, quite on top of his game, but things continued. It didn't fall apart. Didn't have Do you mean just because of Biden's age or? The age problem is, I think, quite acute, and it doesn't help when he makes these gaffes where he goes off, uh, off message, says he's in the wrong country or something. And, you know, people... Uh, the media, the main media is very forgiving of him. Now, we'll all have to see how they, whether they stay that way and, uh, you know, to what extent alternative media. I mean, the U.S. media sphere is in the middle of a giant shift. I don't claim to completely understand it. Obviously, Twitter sort of being balkanized is a, if it actually happens, which it may well, uh, that's a really interesting uh development we also know we don't have to guess um that there are all kinds of content regulation pressures you know on twitter and other facebook and other stuff um the future of this stuff seems to me to be quite open you know the, the regulatory bill that the congress was preparing on what i'll call big communications seems to be now stalled and likely may not happen either in the lame duck session. And I think if it doesn't get to the lame duck session, it probably won't happen at all. So, but in effect, you, what you've got here is a huge um, amount of informal political pressure by organized groups and the public can't see it. We don't know it. Uh, you know, if Musk drops 
uh, emails on Matt Taibbi or somebody, you see those. You don't see what isn't dropped on them. Uh, and so we just have to, it's, it's, this is, I'm not telling you it's wonderful. You know, this is the usual line I close on. I'm, we're probably not ready to do that yet. You know, if you want a happy ending here, see a Disney movie. You know? So one thing I, I wanted to go back to was um, with these railroad strikes, I've seen a lot of people try to turn this into, you know, this is all just the fault of Republicans. And I, I don't think it's no. possible to do that. I mean, I've talked uh, to a number of the people from Railroad Workers United, and they're they're pretty angry right now at uh, Democrats right and Biden. So, what do you think is going on with, uh, I guess, the discourse around the railroad strike being, you know, quote unquote, averted? Um, and and do you think that some people may be being too easy on the Democrats? Well, you'll never go wrong. Look. The big story out of these elections, right, has been just the sort of what might be called the block formation um, in the official political part of the world. I mean, you get red versus blue. The big story in uh, American elections are these polarizations between two blocks. Now, a lot of folks are sitting around thinking this is coming from the bottom up. I think, as you know, it comes from the top down. People build blocks. Uh, by they make their uh, explicit appeals or they don't to labor unions, to college educated folks, to uh, ethnic groups as ethnic groups, to women or men as groups. I mean, this is this is a top down discussion, uh, principally. Um, it's I mean, you can see this very dramatically in the Republican Party. Uh, in the late 80s, suddenly the polarization on religion went way up. I, and, I, and you can see that in, in Andrew Gelman's uh, book on the voting stuff. That was clearly a White House initiative. James Baker did it. Uh, you know, that was, and, and when, and uh, even small details like this, remember when Jim Bakker and his, Baki and his wife, suddenly, you know, one of them was having an unusual form of witness, and my memory is a Louisiana motel room or something like that. Um, the uh, And the, the drop, there are people claiming to this day those news leaks came from the White House. I do not know if that is true, but I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, people shape political coalitions here, uh, but the religious one was certainly shaped, really jumping in the 80s with some predecessors. Um, there. Um, I mean, Reagan did a bit of that in 1980. I wrote about that back in uh, a thing called the Hidden Election, Joel Rogers and I did. Um, but um, yeah, so uh, no, I think the labor unions are marginally maintained. The, I mean, I, this, this is worth maybe following up on. If you look at um, the, the uh, New legislation, the Biden that people passed on, you know, rebuilding America, what do they call that thing? Build Back Better, whatever. Yeah, the Build Back Better bill. Yeah. 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 The one that has the green investment stuff. <laughs> I was quite struck in the um, November election, but by the res different responses to uh, in Ohio and Michigan that, you know, when I was growing up, they were almost the same. I actually moved between those states. And I didn't think I was shifting from, you know, in any dramatic form at all uh, there. <clears throat> but uh, the um, 
uh, Tim Ryan in Ohio, you know, running as a Democrat, didn't even take his home county. That was Mahoney. And that, that was uh, Youngstown Company, as I recall. Um, and I asked myself, I, I noticed I, the turnout differences were quite large. And I asked myself, what's going on here? My bet is, because I knew they had trouble in Lordstown with um, rebuilding with a, a climate-oriented electric vehicle issue, as I recall. Um, I have a feeling that where the disposition of that cash goes out, if, it, if you focus on the car industry, you know that you're going to lose like 30 to 40% of the total number of jobs. This point is grasped by everybody involved, I think. Um, and it doesn't help that the UAW has been, let us say, not exactly Walter Ruther led in the last uh, few years uh, there. I mean, you know, they had their president had to disappear because he was indicted and um, <clears throat> et cetera. So my sense is, uh, you're picking winners and losers in these things. And it bothers me a lot that I don't see a clear strategy coming from the Democratic Party to make an effect the broad population winners. They're in, instead picking winners and losers. And they, I mean, I get their point that they don't have unlimited money. I, I understand that uh, too. Um, but they, they could, it, I, now here I would, just we pass to a slightly different topic. It was, I think, a mistake not to emphasize much more heavy, uh, heavily than they did the Green New Deal, which I actually thought that was the Democrats' really good answer to many problems. And if you look, I think you see it in the Georgia vote, uh, maybe a little more clearly in November, in November than now, because I mean, uh, Warnock did make some inroads there, but not, in my opinion, important ones. Um, but just in general, um, that while the Democrats won a few rural areas this time, because they won the whole state, uh, the Republican strength in the rural areas is pretty clear. And I don't see anything that the Democrats are doing there other than to shovel cash out in the usual farm programs, which go to mostly active farmers. I understand that they've made an initiative toward black farmers who got shut out of everything. That's, a, you know, that, yes. But there's nothing that's going to tilt the balance of power one way or the other. If the Democrats can't figure out a way to deliver to the whole population, I think even in uh, 2024, they're going to face some real problems mobilizing people. I mean, that they could go right back to where they were in 2016 against uh, Trump. I mean, right now, my sense is, is that what's tilted in American politics is mostly in the upper middle classes, um, and particularly, I mean, they don't like the idea of overthrowing the Constitution. Like January 6th was a bit much uh, for them. And, I, you know, there I think the, the uh, special committee did a pretty good job on that, though a very slow one. And their prosecution rates that the, the Justice Department's been doing out of this are still way too slow um, there, in my opinion. But but it does sound like you know I, I just to really quickly go over that um, it, it does sound like you know there are these sort of upper middle class voters that are just like whoa this this Trump stuff has gone too far and that may help the Democrats in some ways uh, but it also sounds like I mean the issue I have right now is everyone is talking about uh, Democrats are doing so great right now because uh, the red wave didn't happen 
And I mean, uh, yeah, the red wave did, didn't happen, but a lot of these elections were very close. And I think things can tilt right. back I in the other direction completely. very quickly. I agree completely. The, the shift here, I mean, it's sort of like analyzing the shift between 2016 and 2020. It was minute. I mean, we're still in Groundhog Day. This is not like nobody's having a, uh, I'll use this, this language, which I actually think could still work some other epoch. Um, you didn't have a critical realignment anywhere here. And if the Republicans put up a less crazy uh, presidential candidate, um, you may see a big shift. They'll call it a move back to the center. It'll be a move back to the right. Now, maybe we could pursue this for just for a second. If you look, um, my co my colleague Servas Storm and I have been we, we've been looking at labor markets in detail, and you can see uh, how, like for example, the nursing number of people working in nursing homes is not back to where it was. Uh, on the eve of um, COVID, and, all, and you will see that in other places. I mean, when you reprice those low-wage jobs, which is the only effect that I can see uh, there, uh, when you reprice those low-wage jobs, you make the care more expensive, and you haven't. And 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 many of the nursing homes claim they are under financial constraints. Now we will do the usual. Uh, thing that's so they can pay if they're if for profit type stuff so they can pay uh they want to see their stock rise and our dividends uh etc i mean this i'm not telling you that uh they're living on the edge of, of uh, privation or something like that in the corporate uh total flow of cash um but um it's it, it's extremely interesting that you know in in 2020 Essentially, every country in the world, but certainly also every developed country, uh, death rate went up uh, there. Uh, in 2021, in most of the developed world, the rich world, if you like, those the death rates went back down. They didn't necessarily return to where they were, but they went down. In the U.S., they continued going up. And my sense is, is that the floor is falling through here for large numbers of poorer folks. And the administration way too quickly got rid of its pandemic aid. I mean, especially if you tell people to pay for their own COVID tests, uh, people are just not going to be able to afford it, particularly if you've got, you know, if you get one person in a family sick, they got to give the test to everybody in the family, including the kids. Well, that, that's something I wanted to come back to. So do you, do you think the the do you think COVID could come back to haunt uh, the Democrats or, or the way that they've responded to COVID? All right. This is a tricky story, but let's try. Uh, the answer is yes. It's already, I think, coming back. But so far, it hasn't been politicized. One problem is uh, that the Republicans are, if any, worse positioned on this. There's just new papers in the last two days, one of which looks really good to me, um, that suggests that rather more Republicans died than Democrats uh, in 20 and early 21. I think that's it just runs through those first couple of years, first year and a half there. Um, and, uh, you know, eventually people will catch on to this. Um 
You know, like DeSantis in Florida was saying, oh, look at how great we did. But the Florida death rate is nothing to be proud of. You know, it's just sitting in the middle of the pack. Um, and um, no, I think, but that's in that sense, it's kind of a bipartisan. I mean, it was clear that a lot of people were quite distraught at continuing to isolate. Now, that's partly because the service delivery stuff was so poor. It's not as bad as in China. I mean, I know people in Shanghai who actually had real trouble eating when they were under lockdown, and they weren't poor. Um, and, you know, when you fail completely at provisioning the population, which has obviously happened on a large scale in China, which is why they're all protesting, um, and you just sort of do blanket lockdowns. Well, uh, you know, even a regime as well entrenched as the Chinese one can see big protests. Yeah, it's it's interesting because as we were saying before we started recording, uh, for a lot of people, that a lot of people thought this was unthinkable that this level of protest would have happened in Shanghai. Yeah, I have to observe that I was a little skeptical, but I remember when Soros gave a speech um and sort of said that well this could actually happen with covid um and you know we have we haven't seen what ha- as they now open up the stuff will also spread rapidly and, and uh this is going to we're we're just in the early stages of this uh, i'm not going to use a baseball analogy an innings or something this is too serious for that uh but we're not looking at a happy story here uh, but now come back to the U.S. And effectively, um, one of the big fa- the Biden administration made several big failures on COVID policy. The one is that the biggest one, I think, in terms of consequences for the long run, is they just did not push vigorously to get the vaccine out to the rest of the world. They made some gestures. They didn't probably, and uh, you know, it's uh, commonly said, well. Not only the Americans, but the Germans didn't do much. Well, the Germans also have a firm that's part of the consortiums on um, that, but uh, on the uh, vaccines. But this was a big policy error, and it means that you know you're uh, you're constantly su- uh, subject to the risk of some really devastating variant coming in. Um, and I, I further, uh, I happen to know, I can't tell you how I know under the um, investigative reporting, let's say, um, despite all the noise about how wonderful the vaccination program development stuff was, that the folks making those decisions were warned very explicitly not to concentrate on just the narrow range of vaccines they did, that it would be too easily slipped by the thing. And they... Uh, the folks that gave them the warning were then amazed that uh, this actually, uh, that they didn't take cognizance of that. I, that program was too narrow in what it tried to do. And, the, it you know, it didn't work at all, really, uh, hardly in getting sort of treatment stuff. That was also part of the emphasis in that program. That didn't work really. I mean, the stuff's already obsolete for much of the uh, stuff. Um Anyway, there are that type of problem, but then they just didn't set up a big testing service to just catch it. Now, the only way they catch this stuff now uh, is, you know, some hospitals actually test, and many of the hospitals aren't testing, are using a formula for assigning cases that where they've got more COVID 
you don't know quite where it comes from. If they find COVID later, they often won't record it as a COVID case. Um, and the truth is, we need a national. We obviously need a nationwide system of testing, so you can see right away not only how many people have this, but what variant it is. And, you, and, and, and it's it's crazy that the U.S. is relying still for much uh, information on um, medical, you know, tests of stuff from you know other countries. I mean, it's like even the Wall Street Journal gets around on that one. I don't you know what were these people thinking in the White House uh, there, and then they should have just continued supporting. Uh, and sh you need to get if people are sick, they need to be able to take sick time off. Um, they need you know some lo minimal level of support on insurance. This stuff is vanishing even as you and I are talking. This is a real problem. And now what this is going to show as, by the way, where does this pay off? It, it, where does, I mean, how about not pay off? I mean, in the sense of what does this add up to? It means that you have many more labor force problems with people staying employed than you admit. And the long COVID thing, it's bad that, you know, this discussion should be much bigger than this. It's being led right now in the, much of the world by either central banks or a few institutions that put out special reports. You know, the CDC should be doing very vigorous. I mean, they probably do in the studies. I don't think they're totally incompetent. I think they have been, however, generally incompetent. Uh, I don't agree with, I don't disagree with the Michael Lewis uh, that, that thing. What's, um, the, uh, the premonition, it's a devastating account of the early months of the pandemic. Um, the... Um, no, we got a we have a problem here, and it's going to keep churning up, and it's going to hit the poorest the worst. Uh, and U.S. labor markets will not uh, fix up until that happens. Uh, I mean, supply shocks of all types. It's not going to be the only supply shock you've got because you got war, you've got the changing military alliances, you have um, crop failures, climate change probably is getting worse, uh, et cetera. Uh, so this is a this is a nasty business. Uh, just a few more things, real briefly here. Sure. Uh, with regards to the the you know the railroad workers and labor, um, you know I've had a lot of people. I, I've talked with a lot of people about the way that Ted Cruz, Rubio, and Josh Hawley went on on this whole issue. I mean, we have the the famous story now of Bernie Sanders and Cruz doing the fist bump and. Sanders saying jokingly, uh, I knew you were a socialist, um, but they, they they were saying, you know, they were signaling to, you know, laborers in America, hey, yeah, we do want you to have uh, paid sick leave. And even if that's not going to be the intention of those Republicans, right, you know, I, I think this whole railroad workers story uh, is going to be used by a certain segment of Republicans against the Democrats. Do you think that's going to play a factor in upcoming elections? Probably in places, you know, it doesn't require a genius to figure out where they are, where you got a lot of railway workers. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm sorry, but a lot of politics is that simple, um, you know, there. But, um, you know, Sanders was also quite good at explaining why these folks are, um, let us say, fair weather friends. <laughs> I mean, not likely to stick around. Um but the um, yeah, I think when the Democrats fail to deliver, I said, I mean, you know, I, I actually think the problems when you get as you got in the current American electoral scene, 
where you have almost as many low-income people voting Republican as Democrats, um, you need to ask what's going on. I mean, like, I would, you know, I mean, I, there's that famous old line that in ideology, the world appears upside down. But this is crazy. This is upside down and refracted through a, you know, 12-dimension polyhedron or something. Um, and so... Um, yeah, I it, it, like just try delivering for the people and you'll get votes. This is not these folks are aiming the Democratic Party. Let me just um, you're now please brace for what is effectively the, the I mean, I know this is the most tired thing in the world. And yes, I do it. These this is a money driven system. I mean, so far we haven't you know discussed cash in the last election. That's because my colleagues and I are still analyzing it. And we'll be the only people to sort of work you through this in, in true, both true numbers, but also probably tell you what it means. Um, and it's obvious that the whole top of the Democratic Party, starting with Pelosi and company, you know, I mean, Pelosi's routine on the stock market, that it's OK to just make laws and be in the market at the same time. Anybody can see that that's crazy. Um, and it's wrong. And, and I think that kind of stuff does percolate down. You know, there's that whole, there's a Twitter feed or something. Now, this is to really reach into the netherworld. But I, I mean, on what's it called? Pelosi stock holdings or something like that. I mean, this is crazy stuff. They, I mean, they need to clean up their act in the Democratic Party at the top. Uh, and they haven't done it. And they're, my bet is they won't do it. Um, and, um, you know, that's that. Um, so this is a money driven system and they're chasing money. They are not chasing, uh, fundamentally votes. They can be quite sure that like they're, they're, most of the Republican party will not seriously contest them on shutting railway workers out of sick leave. Um, you know, I mean, that's a place where there's just no competition in American politics. It's this principle of non-competition across all parties, as I keep pushing in my old golden rule book, that's basic. Money-driven systems are very different from systems that are controlled by so-called median voters. And it's like trying to get this right through the skulls of political scientists. That's very hard. They just are never going to, uh, in poli-sci and economics, they will never... Uh, acknowledge this but it's true and here is a great case also in in regards to pelosi and the democrats i, I felt like a move was made when it came to this real strike to say okay we're going to propose a way to shut down this strike but we'll also propose uh paid sick leave in this other legislation but you know ultimately i i think the move there was well we know this paid sick leave uh, proposal isn't going to go through. That's right. No, no, it's completely cynical. It's endless rhetoric about how we're going to help you, um, which does, you know, that was when Trump said, you know, let's try appeal. I mean, Trump would actually, he was quite contradictory. I mean, he's, encur he's encouraging obvious bigots while at the same time talking about, you know, what's, what has done, what have 30, 40 years of Democratic parties done for average poor citizens of racial and ethnic groups, et cetera. Um, this is just rhetorical garbage. Um, I would add, by the way, that in a situation, I, I, let me just let's sketch out where we're headed. You got to see interest rates, real rates are up now. They weren't uh, much higher than they were. 
and they are likely to go somewhat higher. My sense is that even in the financial world, the pressures on the Fed to slow down are uh, growing uh, there, um, partly for international reasons, like it could collapse the whole uh, developing world. Um, all right, but that means that U.S. debt costs are rising, um, and so you're going to get pressure to cut budgets uh, there. It's obvious that um, there'll be more pressures on Social Security, on especially all the forms of COVID spending uh, that are still out there. A lot of that often just what, what actually happens is you drop money in the states. The states have been very slow to spend that. Um, and that's another problem, but um, another problem for another time. Um, but the um, we're obviously going to face pressures. And as military spending ramps up, if you sort of pay attention to the latest articles in the general press, you can see all these folks saying, you know, we're running out of artillery shells because what um, and it's like almost the whole uh, whole of NATO and allied with the U.S. countries, everybody's sending artillery shells over there. They're all going to have to restock. That is not going to come cheap. Um, and so you're going back into this world where as you restructure alliances uh, in a what I'm tempted to call a you know, a uh, multi malevolently bipolar world. That is to say, uh, you're, you don't have a single hegemon. That's certainly not the U.S. You got various breakaway tendencies and a lot of friction. This is not looking good to me. You're looking at more pressures for military spending, uh, the pressures to cut civilian spending in a country where the death rate failed to drop in 2021 is very, very important to to realize. Yeah, I just wanted to add to that real quick. Uh, with the issue of there not being one single hegemon, uh, it, it's interesting to me, whatever I point that out or other people I know point that out, uh, people, I've had people say, oh, you know, you're cheerleading uh, for like a multipolar world and that's Russian propaganda. And I, I mean, I, I do think that if you watch channels like RT, they do sort of cheerlead this idea of a multipolar world. They do. But this is Absolutely. just simply an analysis to talk about, you know, it seems like that's what we're moving towards. It's not necessarily that we're cheerleading it. And in fact, a multipolar world can be very unstable. It's kind of concerning. I do not disagree with the sort of standard realist approach there, with the exception that I think realism is very unreal in the sense that, I mean, domestic politics and economics really matter. Um and but um, it's absolutely the case that you're living in a multipolar world and you may not like it, but they are if you're not careful, the level of friction can rise very fast. If you think it's fast now, it could go up a lot more um, and that's going to increase costs across the board. I, I actually um, think the U.S. needs to find some ways to de-escalate, especially with China. Um, I'm not telling you that, you know, that it's all our fault or something like that. It's not. Uh, but they need to, the two big powers in the world need to get along with each other in less dangerous ways. Biden's made some sense of that. But, you know, I, I think I did an interview with you early on and I said the, the administration rhetoric on China was too hot to trot from the very first. I mean, when they 
did that meeting up in Alaska and just lectured them on norms and values. That was crazy. Um, you know, we're, that's the, totally inappropriate for the kind of world we live in. Um, and they need, uh, I do not favor normalizing things. I'm not pushing in the Olaf Scholz line. Let's go back to the world, you know, if, if they would, if, the, if Putin would promise not to invade again. I mean, I can hardly believe I heard that from Schultz. That's he did say something very close to that. Um, like as positively as last territorial demand in Europe, one wants to say. Um, the It's like, no, but they can't do this. We, sh we simply can't go on living on the edge of serious threats of nuclear war either. And uh, so we, it would be, I think, wise to sort of get this thing regulated. It's obvious that both parties are thinking not about stopping the war now in Ukraine. They're thinking about talking about stopping the war. And it could take a year or two more for this to work through. Um, it seems to me that, uh, like, for example, some of the hawk pressures in Washington to hand out weapons to the Ukrainians to encourage them to strike inside Russia, that's nuts. Real quick, if we could, um, just to go back to what you were saying about, you had mentioned uh, Twitter and Musk and these Twitter files, and you, you said something about, um, you know, you have to know uh, sort of what's not being released or not being leaked. Uh, maybe you could elaborate on what you meant by that um, in the sense of, it, it sounds like we're in an environment right now where everyone is doing spin, whether it's Democrats, whether it's yeah. Musk's Twitter. Yeah, so talk a little yes. bit about that. Right, you want me to elaborate on that? Yep, it's spin, just like that. I mean, you know, how crazy is this? Yeah, well, I mean, we know that the FBI, we know from a court case that the FBI did talk to Twitter about somebody in the FBI We'll put it that way. That, that uh, we will soon be told it wasn't the FBI. Fine, it was some, uh, but it seems pretty clear that there were some official contacts there, or at least contacts between officials. Let's put it that way. Um, and those aren't in the drop we just saw that I saw. I mean, they may be buried there somewhere. I mean, it's a very big file. Um, but you know, that says to me everybody's selectively releasing stuff. My general view on this stuff is. Um, look, there's no substitute for thinking for yourself. You're not going to be handed the truth by somebody. And if you are, you'll probably be, have to ask, why is this happening? <laughs> you know? I mean, so it, uh, another way of this, a somewhat uh, more depressing way of thinking about this, think when they're all charging each other with stuff, sometimes everybody's telling the truth. You know? <laughs> so it's not a laughing matter, but there we are. That, not, that's kind of where I'm at right now. I think yeah, right. people should be We're paying attention to what are. everyone is saying because it seems like um, what we have right now are different interests saying, hey, focus on the people over there, not me. Uh, right. But it doesn't necessarily mean they're lying about everything no, they're that's saying. Right. No, a lot of times magicians want you to distract you. To, they tell you to look over there, you know, you turn your eye over there, and then something moves over there. No, nope, that's. Uh, yeah. I, what can I say? I wish it were different. It's not. In closing, uh, I know we've talked before about the sort of corporate wing in the dem of the Democratic Party versus uh, the progressives or the corporate squad. Body. There's a there's a progressive wing with a corporate body, as far as I can tell. And, you know, the corporate wing, it's not like it's we have a two two winged bird here. They're roughly the same. What was that? Twelve senators finally 
voted against the um, the bill on the railroad thing, and probably a couple of those were Republicans. We're not down to a large number. But I mean, it's a corporate body, but go ahead. Yep. Well, I just meant if you could elaborate on where you think all that is headed, because I, I see people talk about the squad still and Bernie, but where do you think we're at right now? Well, I think the progressives missed some important messages. Um, they should have made a much bigger deal out of uh, the COVID coverage and things like that than they did. They were important early on because the first, the very first draft of the transition team stuff for Biden uh, didn't have anybody in there from OSHA. And I know the Progressive Caucus highlighted that because I, uh, and they did, and that was quickly rectified, not that it did much good uh, in the subsequent, that was just the transition team, not the folks actually taking over. Um, but, you know, they kind of defaulted, the progressives kind of defaulted on the health issues too, often just sort of trying to move in lockstep with somebody's view of what was good for education. That's a separate discussion uh, there. Um, and, um, but it's like, you're going to have to, you're going to get back to uh, basic bread and butter issues because the notion that everybody, uh, say, on the bottom half of the income distribution is going to come out for you if you just keep talking about what you're going to do for them. And then when you're in power, you don't do much. That's a serious problem. It's going to, you know, you're going to go right back to where you were. I mean, the conclusion of that paper that Ben Page and I and a string of other people wrote um on 2016 was you know when you looked at the uh folks why did they who voters who looked at 20 voted in 2012 and not in 2016 they would often just say things like you know it's just meaningless um this will creep into the discussion it's being clouded right now by deliberate appeals to various ethnic uh, constituencies and things like that but watch what's going to happen uh, there, it's not helped by polling, which ten, which perhaps some people. I mean, back when I was working for the guy who used to take the New York Times poll, I actually did do this. I was his research assistant. I didn't work on the Times poll. I, I worked on you know his classes with him. We were all in Princeton. Um, we used to say printing polls without income distribution breakdowns was unethical. People routinely do this. They just substitute education for that. That makes it much simpler for you know uh, to get arguments wrong that you can never see through. I mean, I do think that this issue uh, with just even the educated versus the uneducated is is a little too simple. I mean, it misses some very high income folks um, in a Republican Party. Um, it it misses a lot, but the the polls are, let us say, they defy compact summary when you can't get these breakdowns. Um, and you know, I, I'm not, uh, I'm not keen on this stuff. Yeah, yeah I, I was just going to add briefly. I, I guess Rob, what I was trying to ask was, I mean, just tell I, me what you want. I'll do my best. I, well. It, 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 are these sort of progressive Democrats, I mean, can they really even have that much of an impact? No, I on... think, yeah, I, I'm sorry. I, I want to defend especially uh, some of the justice Democrats, AOC and company. 
they have not always been wise. I thought the choice of slogans on crime was really a bad idea. I think that nobody has dealt really with immigration issues. Uh, I mean, one thing that probably will happen in the um, lame duck session is they'll probably push through a, a bill to uh, on agricultural workforce immigration from Mexico, uh, at least temporary. Um, but uh, it's obvious that the corporate Democrats really hate them. And they hate the stuff about, you know, AOC just stood right up on um, uh, when Pelosi was saying, oh, she didn't have a problem with, you know, her stock portfolio. Well, she run and said, well, we got to fix this. Um, and um, no, I think uh, the amount of time and effort spent and corporate money spent trying to block progressive Democrats, some of it not all of it, but a good deal of it with the acquiescence of the Democratic National Committee people, if not the committee formally, um, tells you, now they really can't stand this. Uh, and because uh, look, there, there's a point, it's very, there was a great study about 25 years ago um, on, uh, it was actually on U.S. Nicaraguan policy. Now, this is almost from ancient Egypt. I am old enough you know, that I remember this, all right? So, but I'm not claiming to be a relic. Uh, a little premature uh, there. Um, and what the guy in the paper showed uh, was that um, the New York Times would cover uh, congressional talk of something, but they often wouldn't cover the protests. And then around the vote, when the vote on whether we should continue aid to the Contras would come around, they'd stop that for a while. Then they'd go back to that. A lot of the media follows an implicit rule that if somebody in Congress talks about it, they have to cover a little bit. Now, that rule is variable, and it gets suspended. Like, you know, Sanders just disappears off radar screens uh, in the Post, the Times, all from, you know, it would be, I'd like to see a study of that, actually, and I... Uh, but since I don't haven't seen the data, I won't. I'll be a little cautious. But the, having folks in Congress that represent and will occasionally speak up uh, is very helpful. I I think things would have been very different um, if we had had uh, you know early in COVID more public discussion. There was certainly private discussion. I've seen one letter on that. I mean, it made the administration put a person connected with OSHA onto its transition team. Um, and, but uh, no, I, I would, a lot of folks would like to get rid of all of these people, and particularly as we go to budget discussions. Uh, I guess that's the question though. I mean, can they want to get rid of these people, but you know, are, are these people going to go away? Uh, I mean, it, it seems like the Democratic Party is really good at slapping back against the Bernie wing and, and AOC yep. and whatnot. So, yep. I mean, what what chance does the squad and the progressives really stand right, against here, this machine? We, we may have to close on this. This is going to depend on how big a mess uh, American politics becomes in the next two years. You get a deep recession and it's just, look, it's just like in the early depression years, uh, 30, 31, where things seem pretty moribund. Then the Democrats did pretty well in the 30 elections. 
there was still a bunch of super conservative Democrats. I mean, these people were impossibly reactionary in many cases. These were not New Dealers. No way you could do that. Uh, but you make a big enough mess, and this stuff resurfaces. Uh, I'm sorry to say it is the case that events are, you know, the most powerful educator there is. So we'll close on that. Is is there any one point that you want listeners to get out of the conversation we just had? And I'm, I'm sorry for keeping you over time. That's <laughs> no, okay. I mean, um, one point, uh, just remember you're dealing with two money uh, interests here, the Democrats and the Republicans, and think not just where do they appear to differ, but where do they share in commonality? Um, and then think for yourself. Always remember the golden rule. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, yes. Those with the rule, money usually rule. But, you know, in deep depressions, that does not hold true. And we all found that out in the New Deal. And, and you know, I would, look, it's extremely interesting to see how your your the bulk of the population, bulk of the population's real wages are down. I mean, uh, they just are and have been for a long time. They've been losing steadily on inflation. There's now, I think you're, you're sitting, how this stuff plays out you know, in bargaining, you see many more small strikes. You're, it, you don't see too many big ones, you see a few. And the railway, the biggest strike of all, the railway thing, well, you know, didn't happen, at least not yet. Um, but I don't think that, uh, it's like, if you look around the Pacific, you see all these volcanoes exploding in Hawaii and, you know, Japan and elsewhere, uh, giving off smoke, et cetera. You're living, the tectonic plates are shifting down there too. And my, again, I focus, the best thing to do in the next couple of years is for everybody to focus on U.S. death rates. If those things keep going down, uh, sorry, going up, um, they, if they can't get them down, you can be sure that a lot of things are happening in the tectonic plates. Well, Thomas Ferguson, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, people can keep up with your work at INET, right? Yeah, they can go to places. Any, in fact, probably are, are just on the web. I'm around. You know, that's where they find you, for example. You <laughs> probably don't find it as an official Twitter announcement, right? <laughs> <laughs> thank you for having me. Pleasure. Next up, Jack Rasmus, author of The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump, joins us to discuss the railroad workers' strike that was swatted down by the Biden administration and Congress. In this conversation, Jack Rasmus and I will go into the corporate forces that have long sought to quell railroad worker rebellions. From the early 20th century to today. So, with that being said, let's get right to the conversation with Jack Rasmus, author of The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump. Welcome to Parallax Views, Dr. Jack Rasmus, author of The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you. 
So, uh, Dr. Rasmus, I wanted to have you back on the show uh, because you have a new article out. I saw it on uh, the great website Counterpunch, uh, U.S. Rail war- Railroad Workers Under the Thumb. And a lot has been going on with the railroad workers. I just spoke to members of Railroad Workers United about the struggles they're facing, having this contract imposed upon them and, um, you know, just not getting sick leave uh, and uh, horrible quality of life conditions. Uh, How do you interpret everything that has happened, especially with regards to Congress, when it comes to uh, the U.S. railroad workers and what it means for the broader workforce in America? Well, uh, you got to understand that this is the 19th time uh, that Congress has intervened to prevent a strike in the railroads. Uh, In 1926, uh, a law was passed called the Railway Labor Act, which provided for a, quote, cooling off period if the parties couldn't come to an agreement, parties being labor and management, and that the strike was imminent. Uh, then the government could step in and demand that they uh, not strike for 90 days. And uh, in the interim, the government would send in its uh, representatives to see if they could get the parties to agree to a deal. And if they can't, uh, then they issue recommendations, which become the deal, so to speak. Uh, After 90 days, uh, according to the law, the workers, uh, if they don't accept the deal, you know, brokered by the government, uh, they could still strike. Uh, but uh, then the government pulls the other gun out of its holster and it says, uh, oh, if you strike, we're going to pass uh, anti-strike legislation, which may have a lot of anti-union measures in it, which would apply not only to the railroad workers, but other transport workers. Uh, it's interesting to note uh, that this Railway Labor Act Uh, was passed in 1926, uh, really designed uh, as part of that whole period, which was an attack on labor, the 1920s big attack on labor, uh, was really designed uh, uh, to prevent the rail workers from ever striking again. Uh, There were some very significant strikes in the industry that occurred in the 19th century in 1890, uh, 1877. Uh, brought the, the economy to a halt. And of course, uh, you know, capitalists have decided by the 1920s that they were never going to allow this to happen again. And they passed the Railway Labor Act. And since then, 19 times, uh, Congress has uh, threatened legislation. Uh, also, uh, a side point here is that the Labor uh, Railway Labor Act 26 became the pattern for a bigger, similar attack, <laughs> legislative attack in 1947 on the rest Taft-Hartley. of Taft-Hartley, right? Taft-Hartley uh, <clears throat> provided for a cooling off period and a government intervention, the same procedure, uh, but also uh, limited strikes in a whole number of ways. Uh, You know, sympathy strikes were outlawed, sit-down strikes were outlawed, et cetera, you know, Uh, pretty much uh, brought labor's weapon uh, that it used to grow during the 30s and 40s, the strike, striking for recognition even of the union, pretty much uh, ended it. Uh, The capitalists knew going into the post-World War II period uh, that they uh, needed to uh, pretty much, uh, you know, tame labor at home and its big weapon, the strike weapon. Uh, subsequent loopholes that weren't covered in that uh, law, Taft-Hartley, were then added later 
like uh, handling secondary boycott, handling hot cargo, you know, a Teamsters union refusing to carry goods that a union on strike was involved in <clears throat> and other loopholes uh, tightening uh, the, you know, the strike right. Uh, you know, it, 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 over the period since 47, uh, it's like, uh, to use a metaphor, uh, you know, remember that book, uh, Gulliver, Gulliver's Travels, you know, the giant Gulliver and all the lily puttins, uh tie, tie the Gulliver down with all the ropes and so Gulliver couldn't get up. Uh, well, that's a good metaphor for labor since World War II. <clears throat> it's been tied down in all kinds of ways, uh, not just in terms of exercising the strike, but uh, uh, collective bargaining in general <clears throat> and other rights. Uh, and uh, labor is the the is Gulliver. He's, he's on his back. He can't move his arms. He can't sit up, stand up for his rights. Uh, and uh, this is just uh, this huge web, legal web. Uh, that's been tied around labor and it's really designed to you know prevent really strategic strikes where labor has power uh, from occurring uh you know they'll put up with strikes you know in small little bargaining units in the service sector and you know even uh, once in a while in uh, uh, larger units uh, as long as they're not strategic but of course railroads and transport is strategic uh, for the capitalist system and they made up their mind in 26 not to allow the railroad and other transport workers uh, ever to really strike again. And then in Taft-Hartley, they did it as well. <clears throat> uh, so, you know, when, when the government intervenes like this, it pretty much uh, is to the great advantage of... Uh, uh, of the corporations and their negotiators, right? Because once the government intervenes like it did last August, uh, it, that freezes up bargaining on, the ha on behalf of uh, management. I mean, why should they agree to anything else? Because they know, you know, the other uh, fist is, uh, is in the background and will be taken off uh, if the workers ever after 90 days you know, intend to strike again, well, out comes uh, the, the other glove, right? They know that. Uh, so they sit tight. So the government intervention doesn't resolve the strike or possibility It uh, negotiation. It freezes negotiation and makes it almost certain. Well, that's what happened in September. Uh, the government came out with its recommendations, which were very, very pro-company. Uh, I mean, you look at the recommendations, uh, let, let's take the issue of sick leave. Sick leave, uh, you know, workers in uh, uh, in a railroad have no paid sick leave. Believe it or not, there's no paid sick leave. Uh, there's paid leave days, uh, and management says, well, you can take those instead of paid sick leave, uh, but just try to take it and see what happens. Uh, it gets denied. Management says, oh, this is management's rights. We have right to schedule, and therefore we say you can't take your sick leave. You can't take your personal leave. And we're not going to agree to sick leave because uh, we already have this issue with personal leave. Right? So it's not just the number of paid sick leaves. The unions originally asked for 15, which very large uh, you know, union contracts like in Longshore and so forth, you know, they have a significant number of paid sick leave days. Uh, the unions asked for the 15. Obviously, they were going to compromise at something, <clears throat> but management wouldn't agree to anything. 
But the issue is the scheduling as well. Uh, management simply will not allow people to take it, uh, their paid leave uh, in most cases. Well, why not? Well, because in the last three years under COVID, uh, uh, the companies have been operating under a severe labor shortage, which a lot of industries have. A lot of workers just aren't coming back. <clears throat> and management likes that. You see, because if they can get the remaining workers to work like hell, work overtime and uh, bust their butt and so forth and still keep everything going, well, they save uh, a lot of money. You know, 30 percent of the labor force is a lot of wage wage costs. Uh, so they like it that way. <clears throat> and this is going on in a lot of industries. You know, the government says, oh, you know, there's a labor supply shortage. And so forth. well, management doesn't want to hire a lot of them back. Uh, so, but in the railroads, it's really acute. And, uh, and uh, the railroad companies are creating this problem with scheduling and denying people the right to have paid leave or any leave. If they take the leave anyway, if they're sick and they can't come in, uh, then uh, the workers get disciplined. Uh, they get the demerits, believe it or not, like school kids, right? Demerits. Uh, and that leads to discipline, suspensions, and so forth. So um, even if you're totally sick and you can't get out of bed, you'll get disciplined for it, right? <clears throat> Whether you've got paid leave or not, or not even unpaid leave. Uh, so that's the kind of a problem that's uh, going on. But to return to the main point, management um, <clears throat> and the government uh, really gang up on the workers when uh, the government under the Railway Labor Act intervenes, or Taft-Hartley for our other unions, they intervene. And uh, that freezes up negotiations <clears throat> and nothing, nothing's agreed to. And the companies wait to see what happens after the 90 days, <clears throat> whether the government's going to intervene again with anti-labor legislation. And they did, you know, uh, even before the 90 days was up, Pelosi uh, threatened that, oh, you know, we're, and started legislative process uh, for anti-labor legislation. Uh, in other words, preventing the workers from striking even after the 90 days and they had even the legal right to do so under under the Railway Labor Act. You know, now here comes the other legislation that says oh, you do it and uh, you're in trouble. Uh, you know, what can they do to the unions if they struck anyway? Well, the workers could get fired very easily. Uh, the leaders could be thrown in jail for uh, ignoring uh, the law here. <clears throat> If they didn't really come to the, have another vote and strongly recommend you accept it, you know, if they just waffled a little bit, uh, they'd be in trouble. Uh, the union locals would be in trouble because the government could uh, uh, seize the locals, uh, take them over like they did Teamsters, right, years back for reasons. Uh, so that power just sort of uh, hangs over, uh, you know, the unions and, and the negotiators and, and their members. And they know it. And then other unions start putting pressure behind the scenes on them saying, oh, if you guys strike, then, uh, you know, it's going to be legislation affecting us all. And we don't know how bad that's going to look. Right. And then the AFL-CIO, you know, starts making phone calls to uh, uh, the railway union affiliates and saying the same thing. And the international uh, office of the union comes down on the negotiators and so forth. Uh, this is the way the game's always played. You see, there are different levels uh, than the actual negotiators and, and the actual unions uh, the, through which pressure can can be intensified uh, to to settle. And that's going on right now, I'm sure. 
I'm sure. And the whole idea is to get the leaders uh, to recommend that the workers reconsider and uh, go ahead and vote for this again. <clears throat> now, Pelosi pulled a, a typical legislative trick uh, that we've seen before, and that is, uh, uh, well, we're going to uh, throw a crumb to the workers and propose the seven paid leave days legislation. We're, we're going to propose this anti-strike legislation, in other words, the hammer, uh, and then we're going to throw a little carrot in there with a, uh, also seven paid leave days, right? And they knew full well this would not get through the Senate, right? Because right. It's not going to pass anyways, so what's the no. point? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's easy to look that way, you know, and they cover their cover their butt, you know. Uh, but of course, the Senate uh, can't get 60 votes for that. And pre very predictably, what happened was they passed the anti-strike legislation and shot down the paid leave legislation. Uh, you know, going back to September, when the government uh, uh, board that intervened here uh, and, and published their recommendations. It was very clear. They said in their recommendations, we do not agree with any increase in paid sick leave. I mean, they were very explicit. Well, if the government mediators say that, do you think that the companies are going to negotiate that? No, they didn't have to say that in that proposal, but they did, which really proves on whose side they're coming down on, you see. Uh, other issues, uh, you know, well, they're supposed to get a 24% wage increase over five years. Three years of that is retroactive. They haven't had to raise in three years. So they get 14% for the last three years, which still is not covering inflation in the last three years. And then they get 4%, 4.5% for the next two years, uh, you know, expiring in 2025. So 24%, uh, they're going backwards uh, in terms of real wages. Right. And I'm sure they know it. Uh, but, you know, uh, Biden in his press conference uh, last week with Macron, President Macron of France, was asked the big question of the railway. And he said, oh, they got a 45 percent wage increase. I mean, what a blatant lie. I mean, nobody even in the you know, business media says it's a 45 percent increase. He, either he just didn't know what the hell he's talking about, probably. Right. Uh, and, and then he said that, uh, oh, I got it. I got them. 45% <laughs> wage increase. I mean, uh, you can't believe a thing that comes out of his mouth really anymore. Uh, he probably doesn't even know what's coming out of his mouth. Uh, but the point is, uh, you know, they're taking credit. He says, oh, I'm a pro-labor. Uh, I'm the most pro-labor president. Well, he sure proved it, didn't he? Yeah. yeah, that was his big promise on the campaign trail was, oh, I'm going to yeah. be the most pro-labor president you've ever seen. And I don't think he's proven that very well. Uh, well, well, one thing, well, go on. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, well, okay. Mm -hmm. Just just let me wrap up, you know, my, my analysis of this whole thing. Uh, getting back to Pelosi and the legislative maneuvers and breaking out these these two, two laws here. Now, Envision this, if the seven days paid sickly were part of the original anti-strike uh, legislation, that would have forced some of the conservatives, Democrats and Republicans who really wanted the anti-strike to, to swallow hard and accept the, the seven paid sick leave days. They could have done that, right? But they split it out because of the way they knew it would turn out. Now, 
Think about this. This is exactly what the Democrats and Pelosi and Biden did a year ago in November with the Build Back Better bill. The same thing. The social programs, right, were split out from the infrastructure, which, you know, gave money to uh, uh, construction companies and so forth, right? They split it out. Uh, knowing that the construction infrastructure part would be voted up and all the other Sanders social programs, you know, childcare and all that and w- would be shot down. They knew that, right? And they played that same game. Pelosi played the same game last year. And this is a very typical tactical maneuver uh, by politicians when it comes to, to legislation. So just keep in mind that this wasn't uh, uh, here with the railway workers wasn't something new. Uh, this is this is the stuff they play all the time. And elections come, they promise uh, labor and get big donations from, from the unions. Uh, they promised under Obama the card check, you know, and do something about all the uh, employer uh, opposition in, in, uh, and advantages in organizing. And then uh, that didn't even get out of committee under Obama. And then you got uh, the PRO Act under Biden. Uh, that's not getting out of committee either. Uh, what labor gets is maybe a, a one of the three appointees to the National Labor Relations Board, and that's it, you see. Uh, but, you know, the problem with labor is they are tied, the leadership at least, they're tied to the Democratic Party, and the Democratic Party believes they have no place else to go. And uh, they make promises, and they break the promises all, all the time to labor. Uh, but labor uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't get the message, and uh, at least the top leaderships don't. Uh, the ranks are very discontented, and some of them go to uh, Trump and the Republicans, and some of them just don't vote. And but th- those Republicans aren't going to help either. It sounds like both parties no, want to no, help. Uh, no, they they but but they talk to talk too. You know, Republicans are no different than Democrats. I mean, the Republicans just say screw you, and the Democrats say, uh, oh, we'll take care of you, and then they screw you. You know. Uh, so uh, that's the difference in the parties. There's, there's really no two-party system anymore in this country for at least the last 40 years. Uh, there's a single corporate party of America with two wings. One of the wings, of course, is called uh, the Republicans, and the other wing is called the Democrats. They're in an internal, internecine uh, food fight amongst themselves. Uh, uh, but it's really a single party. And when it comes to labor, uh, you know, they, they line up. Uh, they line up because it's the pocketbooks of their campaign corporate contributors that's involved here. They'll fight over social issues and identity issues, uh, what I call the great distraction uh, for voters. And they'll keep us, uh, you know, all tied up thinking that these identity issues, you know, uh, uh, wh- whether it's gay rights or whether it's, uh, uh, you know, other ethnic rights or, you know, whatever, <clears throat> Uh, they'll keep us all tied up with that while they pick our pockets. So one thing I wanted to delve into with uh, with you here right now is, um, you know, there, there was so much spin that came out from uh, the corporate media uh, with regards to the potential railroad strike. And, you know, I kept hearing right after Congress made its decision, oh, this is great. There was a bipartisan effort uh, by the Republicans and the Democrats to avert a real strike that would have destroyed the American economy. And I think it's funny that they use such a soft term like avert. I mean, they're basically just taking away the rights of these workers to strike. Um, maybe you could just de-spin the sort of corporate media coverage 
of this and, and the claims that, oh, you know, why are these workers so selfish? They could destroy the economy and just all of this sort of corporate media, I, I would say, propaganda. Well, what's destroying the economy are the oil companies, the energy companies that are price gouging the hell out of everybody, uh, whether it's gasoline prices and now they're shifting their price gouging to natural gas and diesel for the winter. Right. They go from one to the other, uh, just alternate with the seasons. Uh, they're the ones, you know, over half of the inflation is energy inflation and supply side is price gouging. And other monopolistic uh, companies and industries in the U.S. are doing the same price gouging, uh, whether it's the airlines, you know, or whether it's uh, uh, the banking companies. There's only three or four big banking companies or or, or the uh, meatpacking companies. You know, food prices are way up because they're price gouging. Uh, in other words, uh, there's not much competition and the government won't go after them and they know it. So they just, you know, together raise prices uh, and see how far they can go. And that's uh, exactly what's happened across the board. And then there's these uh, sanctions that the U.S. is imposing on, uh, on Russia and the Ukraine situation, which is causing a shortage of industrial commodities, a lot of which come out of Russia, as well as to some extent oil and energy and natural gas. And all of that is uh, largely responsible, I would say 60, 60%, two-thirds of inflation in the U.S. Maybe one-third of the inflation is, is due to uh, excess demand, which is disappearing. Uh, right now, workers are buying mostly, uh, they're buying on credit. Credit card use is going through the roof again. Now that, uh, you know, the subsidies... Uh, uh, during COVID have, have worn off and they've spent those. Uh, now the only way they can is, uh, keep going is to um, take on second and third jobs. A lot of job recovery in the job numbers is really people taking on second and third jobs, part-time jobs, which the government considers, quote, a job when they report their job numbers, not a half a job, a job, you see. A lot of that is going on. In August, I think it was, I looked at the statistics, 800,000 uh, new uh, uh, part-time jobs were created uh, in one month, 800,000, right? At the same time, you look at those job numbers and you see full-time permanent jobs every month are declining by 120,000, 110,000, and so forth. So the full-time jobs are going away. Uh, the part-time jobs, you know, you get rid of one uh, full-time, you can hire two part-time and it looks like, the you know, it's growing. Uh, that's what's going on with the job numbers, I, I think. Um, but, you know, the government uh, makes it look like it's a spin. Oh, we're doing so good. The job market's so strong, right? Uh, there, there's a, a very effective, what I call ideological apparatus, the media, other institutions, uh, which uh, use certain code words, uh, as you indicated, avert, right? They don't say, uh, we're going to break the strike and throw everyone out of the jobs. They don't say that. They say, we're going to avert an economic crisis. Well, the economic crisis existed and exists uh, before the workers even thought of going out, which they're probably not now, right? Even So how can you blame the workers for a problem that already exists? Well, you can because that's the way the system operates. You see, it always tries to blame the victims for the problem. So the real culprits, real perpetrators are not identified. Uh, and it's very slick. It's very slick, the, the media, the way it works uh, in terms of the, you know, the adjectives and the, and the words it selects uh, to make it look like uh, 
uh, the government's the victim and uh, the true victims are the cause of the problem. That, that inversion is very typical of ideological thought. You know, you invert the cause and effect. Uh, you say a correlation is a causation. Uh, you reverse the, uh, you know, the agent, the person, you know, whether it's labor or, or company uh, as, as the perpetrator. You know, there's a lot of techniques that they use uh, very well, and they're very good at it. Just uh, two more brief questions here. Um, I know there's been a lot of talk about uh, just what we, what we were saying earlier, you know, that the Democrats did not prove to be the friends of the labor movement or the railroad workers in this case. And I know there's a lot of debate about, well, we should back these Democrats, you know, the, the squad and, and Jamal Bowman and, and these other figures. Where do you stand on that? Do you think people are being naive about um, the sort of progressive wing of the party? Um, or do you think they have a point? I'm just curious uh, where you stand. Yeah, well, there is no progressive wing of the Democratic Party, right? Uh, there are some left liberals that think they're progressives, uh, the squad or whatever, right? Or Bernie Sanders in the Senate, right? Uh, but when push comes to shove, they get outmaneuvered all the time uh, and they get slapped down uh, when push comes to shove. That's what happened with Build Back Better last year, you know, and the squad got slapped down the progressives in the house and they went, uh, they disappeared. Right. Uh, and when it comes to war, uh, they, they're, they're all in line, you know, and they vote for a uh, hundred billion dollars, uh, uh, for the war effort, uh, over there in Europe. Uh, and, uh, you know, they, they, they squeal a little bit when we add, uh, when, when they eliminate the paid childcare provisions, right. They, throw some stuff tweets out on Twitter, you know, and that's all you hear about it. But uh, there's no real progressives in the Democratic Party. They call themselves that, but they're not. You know, when push comes to shove, whether it's on foreign policy or economic policy, they fall in line because the Democrat Party, if they didn't, uh, the Democrat Party would run uh, its centrists against them and dump them. And they know it. I was going to add real quick to that. I mean, it sounds yeah. like part of the problem is just, I mean, people can talk about the squad, but their numbers are so small uh, that the centrists in the party seem to always be able to smack them down. Well, I wouldn't call them the centrists. I call it the corporate wing in the party. You see, uh, in the 80s, late 80s, the corporate wing took over the par Democrat Party. Party used to be more of a coalition of different interests, labor and community and so forth, ethnic. Uh, but the corporate wing after Ron uh, Reagan was obvious, but you know his formula was successful, took over the Democratic Party. The faction in the party, Democrats, was called the Democratic Leadership Conference, the DLC. Well, the DLC's boy was Bill Clinton. And once they got in with Bill Clinton, uh, they made sure that they were running the show ever after. And every candidate at the top is vetted by the DLC. Uh, they're the power behind the scenes. And, uh, you know, uh, they they uh, give the green light to guys like Manchin to, uh, you know, block things uh, like they're raising corporate taxes to pay for any of this stuff that was being proposed by Sanders. Uh, and, and when it comes to... Uh, um, you know, in this sense, they're not centrist. They're actually right wing. No, they're corporate. Think of it in, in a class term. They're they're cor That's the corporate wing. You know, all this uh, uh, center right left uh, is an obfuscation. You know, uh, just talk about uh, you know who they really represent. Uh, and of course, you know, it's the corporate wing. 
that didn't want any tax increases to pay for uh, Build Back Better or anything any more than the Republicans did. Uh, and they shot it down just as well. Uh, so, you know, the DLC runs the show. Uh, it's not the, the Democratic Party of your grandfather. Uh, no, this is a different animal <laughs> since the 80s. It's very, it moved to the right in, in, in terms of corporate interests, uh, and it's firmly embedded there. And every time uh, Bernie Sanders runs, uh, they let him run because he'll hold uh, uh, some votes on the left, uh, you know, keep it, keep, keep it the voting for Democrats, right? Uh, keep them close to the party. But then when it's over or when they don't need him anymore, uh, they, they just shit can him, right? They did it, what, two, three times already. And he's still there playing left cover uh, for the corporate wing. That's may sound some harsh to people. Uh, but I think it's a fact. I, I mean, I like his program, uh, but his politics are really designed uh, to prevent any real independent challenge to the Democrats or either wing of the corporate party of America. And that has to occur. There has to be an independent second party here uh, at some point uh, or the shell game that the Republican and the Democrat wing play on us uh, just go on forever. I guess that la that's the last thing I want to touch upon. In, in speaking with a few members of Railroad Workers United, you know, I had a few voices that said, you know, we need a workers party in this country. We can't rely on Democrats or Republicans. But I guess, how do we get there? And, and what do you think the labor movement has to do going forward um, to make a change? Well, I don't think uh, that the top uh, echelon here of the unions are ever going to break from the Democrats. So you can't wait for that to happen from the top down. Uh, I think, uh, you know, groups like the uh, Railroad Workers United and other rank and file groups uh, are going to have to uh, come together and uh, eventually uh, uh, form a, a convention of uh, dissident uh, uh, worker union people and community people and uh, create a new party. Not, not, not this intellectual party declaring like people's party from the top down. Oh, we're going to have a party. You know, a bunch of intellectuals get together and they, you know, it's kind of like that movie, uh, Feel the Dreams, build it and they will come to us, you know, because we know right now it's got to be real movement of real people in the unions, in the, in the workforce, in the communities that have to come from below. Uh, because uh, we, we get back to the first topic. Uh, the Gulliver is tied down, not just economically in strike, uh, but politically as well. The Gulliver is tied down. And uh, someone's got to start breaking those strings, those ropes that are tying down the labor Gulliver, Gulliver here. Uh, and it's going to take a lot of, uh, you know, work uh, at the bottom levels uh, in the unions, because uh, you know the way the unions have been set up under the law here, uh, you know the leadership in the government can really come down and take control of any re, you know re rebellious locals. Uh, they've got tremendous legal power to do that, and they exercise that. Uh, so, uh, you know, you may have a union or two, local union that uh, really wants to build uh, an independent political uh, movement here here, but uh, uh, they will receive a lot of pressure uh, from the uh, institutions uh, from the top down that are, they are in. You know, if you, you control the leadership, you control the institutions to some extent. And uh, 
the system is set up where the leadership is really controlled in many cases here, even though they, they may want to do something. Uh, they try and, uh, uh, boy, you know, out, out come the big guns, right? And they're told to uh, put these locals under receivership or whatever. Uh, and they do so, you know. So it has to be really a grassroots thing from from below. Do you think that um, that grassroots type of movement is at least um, more possible than we realize? Uh, you know, because I, I wonder sometimes, you know, um, Noam Chomsky uh, has, has referred to what we're living in before as, uh, you know, a neoliberal plague. Um, and are we just going to be devoured by this plague of neoliberalism or... Uh, do you think there's a possibility of grassroots action against it? Well, we have been uh, devoured, being devoured little by little here. I mean, especially since 2000. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, the rest of us and uh, the workforce and so forth are going backwards very, very clearly in terms of income. And the political system is retreating. You know, the single party, uh, two-wing single party arrangement just, just cannot tolerate even the limited democracy we used to have. So they're chipping away at it in all kinds of ways, electoral, you know, and rights and, you know, First Amendment and so forth are, are being chipped away. Uh, some of uh, in the wing want to chip it faster, like uh, Trump, right? He doesn't want to chip. He just wants to take the hammer and, and smash it, right? Uh, but the others are chipping away, too. Uh, you know, it, it's neoliberalism is it really you got to understand it's really a class oriented uh, restructuring of the capitalist system, uh, class oriented in the sense of new ways to control and keep down any domestic challengers, uh, be they uh, ethnic and or uh, uh, labor. Right. Keep it under control and uh, going after your foreign challengers who, who think they want to break from the American empire, you know, whether it's uh, Venezuela or whether it's uh, Russia or China or Iran or any of them. You know, you, it, if you don't want to be part of the American empire, you're going to get a response. And uh, we're seeing that happen. The U.S. empire is, is as it is challenged more, is getting more aggressive. Uh, militarily in other ways, uh, but the same thing is happening domestically. Uh, it's easier for them domestically than it is globally, uh, but that's the nature of neoliberalism. In my book, I pointed out that uh, uh, democracy is incompatible with the evolution of neoliberalism, and we're seeing that play out. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Jack Rasmus, for coming on Parallax Views uh, my listeners can keep up with your work, uh, I believe, at jackrasmus.com. Is there anywhere else they can follow you? Yeah, jackrasmus.com is my blog, and I post uh, articles there. Uh, also, um, uh, my radio show on Fridays on the Progressive Radio Network every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern called Alternative Visions. Uh, and then you can get the podcast to that, uh, usually uh, from Podbean or, you, you know, uh, Apple or whatever, it's all over the place. Or you can you can get it from my uh, blog, jackrasmus.com. Uh, you can follow me on day-to-day -day matters on Twitter. You know, my handle is at drjackrasmus here. So uh, the very uh, immediate day-to-day -day from Twitter, a little bit longer term, jackrasmus.com and the radio show. And then my uh, website is, is just Kiklos Productions, K-Y-K-L-O-S Productions.com. You can follow my interviews like this that get uh, typically posted there. 
Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Thomas Ferguson and Jack Rasmus. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff It's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.